Hello, and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. I'm your host, Katie Halper, and I'm coming at you from Miami. I'm here with Nando Villa, friend Hi. of the show. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Uh, Nando is a fusion correspondent and video maker. What? What? How would you describe yourself? What do you say you are? I'm a host. I, I'm also a producer. I, you know, I do some programming work. It's a he's little a bit programmer. of everything. Yeah. He's an IT guy. Yeah. 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 Gabe isn't with us because he's not in Miami. But I flew all the way here to give you guys a kind of tropical vibe. No, I'm I'm here because he and Fusion were nice enough to have me do a special with them on the debate. Yeah, Nando is a repeat guest, a repeat offender on the Katie Halper Show. He joins the ranks of Becky Bond. Wow. And uh, Josh Fox. Oh, my God. Yeah, you're in good company. Wow, I feel very honored. Yeah, and Nando, you may remember him. He redeemed himself after blowing up Bernie Sanders' spot during a fusion, what was it, brown-black forum? Yeah. During which he asked Bernie Sanders about reparations. A lot of African Americans are starting to call for reparations for the many years of stolen labor um, through slavery. Is that something that you would support as president? No, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I think it would be, first of all, it's likelihood of getting through a Congress is nil. Uh, second of all, I think it would be, you know, very divisive. I think the real issue is when we look at the poverty rate among the African-American community, uh, when we look at the high unemployment rate within the African-American community, the incarceration rate within the African-American community, we have a lot of work to do. So I think what we should be talking about is making massive investments in rebuilding our cities, in creating millions of decent paying jobs, in making public colleges and universities tuition free and working on childcare. Basically, targeting our federal resources to the areas that it is needed the most and where it is needed the most are in impoverished communities, often African-American and Latino. And that blew up and- That one's on Bernie. I I totally thought he was gonna say yes. I support, that, I support reparations, right? So what, of course, what happened was that Nando asked uh, Bernie Sanders, and this was the same interview where you touched him, right? You shook his hand. I did shake his hand. Well, am I not supposed to shake his hand? No, you. I'm just saying that's cool. Oh, that I touched. Like, did you hug him? No hug. Oh. He made fun of my clothes. What did he say? He. Oh, I was wearing jeans and a jacket because I'd forgotten my like my my trousers, my like my suit pants. Um, so I was wearing like the top was right. a suit and the bottom was just jeans. And he's like, "Oh, I like the I like the whole um, what you're doing here with the with the jeans and the maybe I'll try it sometime because uh, the people they don't they don't they don't care about my legs, you know. And uh, maybe I can, you know, when I go on TV and uh, that know. doesn't sound like he was making fun of you. Well, but he was he was actually he was kind of making fun of me. He was kind of joking, but kind of into it. Yeah, Rachel yeah. Maddow. I remember once seeing her get up. During her show, she wears these like jackets, suit jackets, mm-hmm. and she was just wearing jeans. Yeah, like loose jeans. Whenever I host something, I'm just naked. On the right, bottom. I know it's just true. You guys pantless. don't know this, but he's totally from the waist down. Just There's a lot pantless. to yeah, pantless. I mean, if only it were just pantless. Well, I don't so, get that joke. Like it's no no underwear. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, but you say pantless, that makes it sound like oh, you were in to- yeah, boxers. Totally yeah. naked, totally, totally naked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's flown in the wind. Yeah, free, what's it called? Free, free balling. Balling, yeah. Commando? Yeah, com- well, commando's when you're wearing pants with no underwear. Oh, got it. Okay, good to know. Yeah. Where I wonder where that comes from. Anyway, next show, we'll, we'll do an expose mm-hmm. on that. So, what did you think of the debate? You know, I, I guess it's broadly what we all expected. Um, Donald Trump just going full-throated on attack, uh, lobbing grenades from every single direction, saying a whole bunch of racist dish, and uh, 
And Hillary Clinton just kind of articulating her vision, for lack of a better term, uh, for what she wants to do as president and looking a lot more like you would expect the president to look and behave while Donald Trump acted and behaved like, you know, like a 13-year-old kid. As always in presidential debates, a huge focus on personality and a huge focus on past things that the people have done rather than sort of a substantive talk about the issues like there was no talk about poverty, just a very cursory talk about climate change. Yeah, I missed that. I don't even know what they said. I'm not kidding. Yeah, I mean, you know, she, she she said that Donald Trump said that climate change was a Chinese hoax. Donald thinks that climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. He says he didn't say that. I think it's real. I, I did I not. Science I do not, is real. I do not say that. And I think it's I do important not say that. that. Although he did say that. She said then says that we have to do something about climate change, but didn't propose anything very radical about it. And here's what we can do. We can deploy a half a billion more solar panels. So, I mean, it was just a very kind of superficial talk on that subject. And then, and then you know, no, no, no discussion on empire and American interventionism. Were you expecting a, a, them to use the, the term empire? No, absolutely uh-huh. not. That's the one area where you see kind of the mainstream media's inherent biases very, very clearly, where the discussion is not... The questions are framed as, you know, how should we more effectively kill the terrorists? Right. Not what... Maybe we shouldn't <laughs> yeah. kill them. Or maybe, yeah. Or, like, or maybe there's something deeper going on there. Right. I, you know, it's just a, it's a very kind of tactical uh, discussion about how to more effectively run the American empire. And, you know, very depressing. I mean, if you're, if you're kind of like looking really, really closely and trying to be hopeful, you do see a commitment from Hillary Clinton to maybe try to end the use of private prisons and state penitentiaries, which that's, would be nice. Yeah. There was some talk on criminal justice reform, again, always couched in, in on the other hand, cops are very good and right. they do a really good job and stuff like that. But it just kind of reinforced everyone's, I think, idea of what this election is about. It's, you know, it's... It's kind of the uh, effective steward of the status quo versus this crazy thing that terrifies us all. I thought for sure that during the first half of it, Trump was dominating. I thought he did really well. I thought what was weird is that both of them kind of were nervous. I'd never seen either one of them so nervous. And, you know, I did feel like it was kind of a rom-com. Yeah. Like a a horror film rom-com. Yeah, like in rom coms, like the, the the two protagonists that fall in love always like kind of bicker at first. Exactly, they, they hate right. Each other. Yeah, right. It's the forbidden fruit. He's a Republican. She's a Democrat. Right. But, but sometimes you have to listen to your heart. Now, in all fairness to uh, Secretary Clinton, yes, is that okay? Good. I want you to be very happy. It's very important to me. Then the David, two elites. David Brock plays like the the best friend. Who, oh my like, god, totally. Yeah. yeah. Who maybe he sets them up, or does he try to convince her to not? No, marry him? he's the one that like. In, in her moment where she most hates him, he he gives her, like, a piece of advice that gives her perspective as to, like, wait, maybe I actually love this man. He's like, look, like I said about Anita Hill, she's a little bit nutty and yeah. a little bit slutty. I say the th- same thing about Donald Trump. And you know what? We love him for that. And, and, and he's not wrong about that. I know. Because, I mean, do you have any doubt that Donald Trump is a little slutty? No. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't like to... I mean, he was sniffling a lot. <laughs> Secretary Clinton, would you like to respond? I think that maybe he was just the, the cocaine orgy from the night before just went maybe a little too wild. Thanks for the freak fest last night. He I apparently did. said it wasn't sniffling, like his mic was bad or something. 
Yeah. This is fun. You see, Nando and I, we rarely actually talk about how bad Trump is because it's, yeah. it is such like low hanging fruit oh, it's and so it's easy. so boring. Yeah, it is super boring. And it's just kind of like the, you know, the, the stern condemnation of Trump's ugliness is just right. like a, achieves very little in terms of, you know, actually fixing the problems we have. I mean, it's just it's just something that liberals do to make themselves feel good feel good about themselves so i yeah i thought he did really well at the beginning i thought she did terribly yeah i thought she turned it around she turned she did she she was right she's actually a good debater like she destroyed obama i feel like in 08 in the debates that's like you know you and i are not clinton fans but i I would say that in in the realm of debate she is she's pretty formidable in general i just think she was probably rattled by like i mean trump Trump came out like just (laughs) lobbing grenade after grenade after grenade and it was just you know it's hard to grapple with that when they're just a lot of them are lies and and frankly a lot of the attacks come from her left that's just a hard position for her to be in it's embarrassed for her i was because i yeah. think she's smart she's a lawyer she's good at debate stuff her the thing was like when trump doesn't have to talk about himself when he's just kind of free uh you know like spitballing off of her he's great he's yeah. a lot like shots fired left yeah. and right and then he's a street she, fighter he's a total street fighter and then she was doing this really annoying thing where, and I know I'm going to talk about the smile, but I'm going to say she smiled too much. <laughs> and that sucks because it's a very passive aggressive thing because she wasn't being genuine. And I feel bad. Like, obviously, she took that smile thing to heart. I yeah. like her when she doesn't smile. Yeah. I like that. But when you smile while you're dissing someone, it's not a good look. For 30 years you've been doing it, and now you're just starting to think of solutions. Well, actually, I will bring, means- excuse me, I will bring back jobs. You can't bring back jobs. Well, actually, um, I have thought about this quite a bit. Yeah, for 30 and years. I have, uh, well, not quite that long. Uh, I think my husband did a pretty good job in the 1990s. Unless you're, like, casually smiling. Yeah. But she was like, uh-huh, I'm going to keep smiling. The thing that I thought was not a good look was when she, like, appeals to the moderator to, like, litigate the time yeah, that I she agree. gets. And all, that, that made her look like, who was the guy that kept on doing that in the Jim, uh, Jim Gilmore? What was like? Wait, uh, oh, Webb? Jim Webb. Jim Webb, that yeah. guy, yeah. Who I really thought during that Democratic debate was going to rip off. Like, he seemed like he was a robot and... I thought he was Joe Biden wearing Jim right. Webb's skin, right? That's, and was going to rip it off that's and probably jump true. out. And the other thing she that she does that and and liberals like to do a lot, and it's something that I make fun of a lot on Twitter, which is the you know like the well, Glenn, Glenn Klessler uh, from the Washington Post fact check claims that that's got four Pinocchios, and it's like, right. oh really? Trump isn't. Trump isn't like uh, yeah. <laughs> fastidious and 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 good on the facts. Right. And also the thing is like certain first of all the, the uh, fact checkers like to present themselves as these like arbiters of the Unbiased, universal right. truth when there's actually a huge amount of ideology going into right. that goes into them to to what all the work that they do. And then the other thing is that there are certain statements that to I suspect an average voter read as complete and total lies with some justification which the Washington Post fact checker cannot fact check. For example, when Hillary Clinton says something like that, her main goal uh, as president will be to help out working families. Like Glenn Glenn Kessler or whatever can't rate that for Pinocchio's. But people looking at home hear her say that and know she's just lying. One of my favorite ones that got a big Pinocchio with Bernie Sanders was like the number of jobs that NAFTA cost American workers. Right. It's like, you know what? He cited a think tank that you don't necessarily agree with numbers-wise, that's right. not a lie. Right. Like, that's a perfect example of ideological yeah. um, influence. The best one ever for Bernie Sanders was Philip Bump in the Washington Post uh, fact-checking his $27 uh, donation line. So it's actually, it actually $27.63. Yeah, but you know what's scary? 
Honestly, yeah. by the time we read it, it could have been like twenty seven dollars and eighty cents. And who knows? Like we're like and that's how and that's how we get a nineteen trillion dollar national debt, folks. Exactly. Yeah. Or you know, the other terrible selfish thing that Bernie Sanders did was he kept running, which was sexist, and then he also <laughs> used like uh, taxpayer money when he insisted on uh, having Secret Service. Right. Yeah. I mean, take no, a bullet. Yeah. If you're such a socialist, because you know socialists take bullets. Yeah, I guess. I don't yeah, even know. Yeah. 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 But I really thought he was winning at the beginning. And David Sirota had an interesting tweet that said, It's shocking to discover that operatives paid to shill for Clinton say she crushed Trump and that Trump surrogates say the opposite. And Matt Iglesias wrote, What do you think happened? And David Sirota wrote, He destroyed her in the first 20 minutes. And then he collapsed. So it depends on how many people watch the whole thing. I think that's like exactly the right assessment, the correct yeah. assessment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird. It's like liberals get it together. They don't know how to navigate the fear and confidence thing, right? Because I don't know if it's a good thing to pretend that there was no fumbling at the beginning. I think she did a bad job. I get that, like, you don't want to seem weak if you're part of the Hillary mm-hmm. uh, machine. But then you get, like, overly confident and overly cocky, and then you can't scare people into vote. I don't know. I don't know what their game plan is. It's weird. I mean, well, the liberal game plan has been very clearly that Hillary Clinton can do no wrong. Um, that's why you, you've seen when there was just a hint of negative coverage about the Clinton Foundation, you saw a series of furious takes saying that it was all just media's weird Clinton pathology. It's just like that there's this weird pathology with the media, specifically with the Clintons, in which they treat them unfairly. I don't know. From my vantage point, I see just universal condemnation of Donald Trump with free media, but condemnation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I thought was interesting was, well, first of all, how many times did you find yourself nodding along with Donald Trump? Trump. I did with TPP. Uh, State, and I had your husband's side NAFTA, which was one of the worst things that ever happened to the manufacturing industry. That is your opinion. You go to New England, you go to Ohio, Pennsylvania, you go anywhere you want, Secretary Clinton, and you will see devastation where manufacturing is down 30, 40, sometimes 50 percent. NAFTA is the worst trade deal maybe ever signed anywhere, but certainly ever signed in this country. And now you want to approve Trans-Pacific Partnership. You were totally in favor of it. Then you heard what I was saying, how bad it is. And you said, I can't win that debate. But you know that if you did win, you would approve that. And that will be almost as bad as NAFTA. Nothing will ever top NAFTA. That that is just not accurate. I uh, was against it once it was finally negotiated and the terms were laid out. I wrote about that in... You called it the gold I, I standard. About, well, I hope... You called I, it the gold standard of trade and, deals. You, you know said what? it's the finest deal you've ever seen. No. And then you heard what I said about it and all of a sudden you were against it. Well, Donald, I know you live in your own reality, but oh, yeah. that is not the facts. The facts are, I did say, I hoped it would be a good deal, but when it was negotiated, not. which I was not responsible for... I concluded it wasn't. I wrote about that. So is it President Obama's fault? Is it President Obama's fault? Even announced. Look, there are Secretary, is it President Obama's fault? There are because he's pushing it. Yeah, the TPP super predators. I do want to bring up the fact that you were the one that brought up the word super predator about young black youth, and that's a term that I think was a uh, it's it's been horribly met, as you know. I think you've apologized for it. But uh, I think it was a terrible thing to say. It's just it's such a it's such a like brazenly cynical line of attack from him. Because that's so something he'd endorse. Of course. Uh, And but it's just it's just it's 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 really funny when when conservatives take wokeness and turn it on liberals. Like (laughs) you know, like when uh, when Anna Kasparian from the Young Turks called uh, Alex Jones a fat, fat, yeah, uh, and And they accused her of body shaming. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. like thanks, (laughs) thanks for being like you know, uh, so woke about. 
that. No, actually, yeah, we woke Trump is a great thing that you actually helped me discover that because that was during the RNC. You were close enough to see the teleprompter. Yeah, I was there. You were there and you saw that Trump added that cue, the LGBT totally ad libbed the cue, which is which uh, is like really woke. He added. Yeah. He's like, no, I'm so down that yeah. I'm gonna add that. As your president, I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens from the violence and oppression of a hateful foreign ideology. Believe me. And I have to say, as a Republican, it is so nice to hear you cheering for what I just said. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I also think what was so beautiful about that wokeness was it was like wokeness that was harnessed to to forward a really right wing. Like it was basically like, because I love you, the gays, I have Mm -hmm. to keep you safe. I'm going to have to kick out the Muslims. And we actually I think I talked about that with Brent. Why did I? Oh, with Brendan James, like months ago, because Vox had a story that's like, it's time for the media to stop pretending Donald Trump isn't racist. (laughs) And Brendan was like, first time I'm hearing it. Thanks. And then I said something like, I'm so I'm tired. Like, I'm. So tired of the media presenting Trump as the intersectional candidate, right. and then Brendan was like, "Folks, we're going to build a beautiful safe space, like the right. most beautiful safe yeah. space." And um, there is there is something to this idea that like what conservatives really want in life is just like a giant safe space for themselves. So that was the woke Trump, and then of course Trump saying like, "I this another part I love was when he's talking about how he did a great job." You're welcome, Obama. Right. I showed the world that you really were born here, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and how he's helping black people in their neighborhoods. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think it is a, an interesting. I Hillary, think she- Hillary's pandering to black voters was also pretty epic. The you know how much she loves black churches right. and black small businesses, and like and how they could be the foundation of a new economy or something like that. Like yeah. It's just like also just so shameless uh, just pandering. Trump trending. one is trending on Twitter, by the way. Did you see that? I mean, yeah. it's like when you see like media takes about, well, who won the debate right. or how did the debate play with the voters? Like they don't know ish about how the debate played with any. Like it's, imp- it's like, right, you know, right. judging it as if it were a sporting contest is almost impossible. This is hilarious, though. Of course, Donald Trump tweets the number one trend on Twitter right now is Trump one. Thank you. Yeah. And then someone named Louise Mensch, I don't know who that person is, but where the Trump one hashtag started, Russia, not a joke. There's (laughs) like, I love this Cold War retro. Oh, yeah. Uh, 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 Julia Yaffe, I think her name is. Yaffe, yeah. I don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, She wrote a a thing that uh, saying that. Trump, uh, the uh, Trump won the Putin focus group in the debate. What is she kidding? Is that a thing? No, she was being serious. That is a that is one of the strangest things about this campaign has been this weird kind of obsession with making Trump a, right. like a, a Putin controlled right, Manchurian right. candidate. Right. Like if you have so to do bizarre. that, like you've already thing, lost. Like if yeah. you have to reuse yeah. McCarthyism and like red scare tactics for this guy. Yeah, it's like, a, but it's like a weird. It's not even. I mean, the the term red scare is weird because it's like you know Russia is no longer red, but right. But it's the it's the kind of thing that two years from now, like people will look back on it and look how like think like how ridiculous was this? It's so strange. I don't understand what 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 the hell they're like this going on there. We're gonna talk to Emmett Rensen. Oh yeah, very great journalist, and he writes young he, guy, young guy. He wrote for Vox. Younger than me, it's crazy. It's crazy because Nando was five. He wrote for Vox, and he writes for Newsday, and he's gonna talk about this piece that he just wrote about Hillary's millennial problem. Emmett, you there? Yeah, I'm here. What's up, Emmett? How's it going? 
Pretty good. How are you? I enjoyed your piece in uh, Newsweek. Uh, Thank you. Katie, Katie Halper didn't like it so much. She disagrees with it. I'm all right, we'll talk about it. I do like it, but we were debating it. Katie thinks the voters are all dumb rubes. I do, I do. Hold on. Well, they may be, but yes, you know, no, they have right? political preferences. So, Emmett, you have a very, very shared piece in Newsweek about why Hillary is failing among millennials. Can you just explain your thesis? Sure. A, a number of polls came out over the last couple of weeks. It basically showed that while millennials are still Clinton's strongest group, and, and I'm pretty sure the only group that is supporting her in a, in a majority, that her numbers with them are weaker than, than they were hoping for. They're weaker than Obama's numbers with millennials. And this led to a whole spat of cakery about why this was the case, and, uh, you know, it tended to either be, uh, you know, young voters are uh, insufferable purists who want everything handed to them and don't believe in compromise, or uh, it was pretty popular to say Bernie Sanders is the problem, because despite endorsing and campaigning for Clinton, he dared to run against her and criticize her earlier this year, and so now the, the young voters are convinced she's a, a, a corrupt elitist. Or, um, you know, if you really want to go out there... Why would they think like, that? I, you know, we can all... Oh, because Bernie Sanders lied, no, no doubt. Right. He wagged his finger, that's why. Yeah. Uh, or if you really want to go out there, you know, um, you got guys like uh, James Kerchick, who's really a neo He's my favorite. He's my favorite, yeah, by the way. Yeah, the n- notorious uh, liar and journalistic ethics bomb, uh, you know, James Kerchick. Uh, thinks that, that millennials are too cynical and also that they are, for some reason, not enthusiastic enough about the prospect of us invading the Middle East. Uh, or if you're, you're Brian Butler, you think it's actually that millennials just don't remember that the Bush administration was really bad. They, they don't remember Iraq. They, they haven't learned the uh, the sort of, uh, I think he calls it an oral tradition around the, the failures of the, the Bush gr- years. The Gria. We don't have enough of a Grio culture. Yeah. Uh, so What's we, that, all we, these... Yeah. Yeah, so all these takes come out, and my, my, my response is basically that a, a more reasonable explanation might be that people's, like, stated political preferences uh, in some way reflect their, like, political priorities. Right. And that, you know, qu- quite a lot of young people, like, have significant ideological differences with Clinton, and while this is not turning them against her in mass, again, they are still his, her largest support group, this might account for some of the fall-off that, you know, she's seeing in numbers there versus the president. So a couple questions. One is, what would Bernie Sanders have to do at this point for people like Kevin Drum to stop blaming him? Like, you know, an organ donation. I, I think he'd build a time machine and go back in time and kill himself right. before the primary. Yeah, I think I think that's yeah. it. He'd have yeah. to get full communism, dedicate the resources of the state to building the time machine, right. and go back and right. murder his parents. Right. <laughs> Wouldn't that be ironic? Kevin well, Drum yeah. actually were the were the the motor behind. Communism. Kevin Drum is actually, you know, the Terminator, and, you know, we're just starting to see this play out. Right. You're not the first person to call him that. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. One of my questions is this. Like, I guess it depends on how informed the millennials we're talking about are, and I don't think millennials are less informed than other people. I just don't know how informed people are in general about policy. This was kind of the debate that Nando and I were having. My My thought was just, like, that, as you point out, I'm in your article, uh, young people like single payer, young people like not spending resources and um, and lives in the Middle East pursuing pointless wars, or I should say pointless for, they have a, a, a purpose for, you know, certain elites. 
and industries. But my thing was kind of like, I don't know how many people actually know the specifics of Hillary's plans in terms of the Middle East or even her plans in terms of healthcare. I think that they do know because Sanders was so great at communicating it and because he has such great positions, he made them very clear. Um, is it, yeah. is it kind of the absence? I mean, obviously you have some people who are more wonkish who know Hillary's a hoff, has been a hoff, that she's saying this, that, the other. Um, yeah, let, let's, yeah. Let's let, I mean, let's be clear. I don't, I, I don't think that like every millennial out there is like sitting down and, and reading up on the platforms and going, well, you know, Clinton, Clinton says, uh, you know, everyone should have health care, but actually she wants an expansion of an entrenched market. Like, I'm, there are right. certainly people exactly. doing that, but like with any, um, any set of political preferences, right? Um, th- that can happen on a few levels, right? There are the people who are that specific. There are also the sort of people who just broadly identify candidates with one issue or an intention or an idea, which is how most elections actually work, um, and, you know, object to it, right? Like some number of millennials, um, whatever their level of familiarity with Clinton's positions are, be those like extremely wonky specifics or be they just, they know broadly what she's for and what she's against. They know she's hawkish. They know, you know, she is uh, very comfortable with Wall Street. And they object to that. And, and, yeah, some of it's, like, in Kohate, right? Like, you see in these polls a bunch of people supporting Gary Johnson, who's a reactionary. But, you know, if you're, like, lower down on the knowledge spectrum, if you simply object to, say, elitism, foreign war, and, uh, you know, some guy is also yelling pretty loud about the drug war, that, that still right. even is sort of, like, ill-informed and I wouldn't advise it. Uh, constitutes, you know, an ideological difference. They see a candidate who supports some things they broadly feel that they're for and a candidate who doesn't, and they gravitate away from the person that, that they don't. I, I think the point here is just that, like, all of the, the takery about it, all those pieces I talked about a minute ago, you know, they, they can't even get themselves to say, like, well, maybe Clinton's, you know, positions and sort of broad priorities aren't really in line with, with all young people's. They want to make them like pathological or con- confused in some sort of mentally weird way, right? And, and, and it's not yeah. that these people expect wonkery, right? Like they are perfectly happy for these people. You know, no one would say like, "Well, do they really uh, object to Trump, or do they just sort of broadly think he's like kind of an qualified?" But that, I mean, like that's perfectly sufficient in that case. Nobody's saying like, "Well, have they really read Trump's you know immigration policy letter for letter?" And no, no, of course they haven't. And for the same reasons, I think a large number of them don't really like Clinton either. Just like a a very clear, the evidence to me points to very clear uh, millennial, for lack of a better term, uh, rejection of the status quo, um, just a, a, a desire for some sort of profound change, as like as cheesy as that sounds, and which is why you see uh, many of them nominally supporting a guy like Gary Johnson, right? Uh, that it's just that, and, the, and that Clinton is identified just very closely and intimately with whatever the status quo is, you know, like sure, and I, I don't, I don't know that you. You know, it's it's not rocket science, I think, to me. It's, it, that just seems like a very clear um, thing from what I've seen in this election. Well, right. I mean, so, the thing, yeah. you know, I was I was almost skeptical of being able to milk a thousand words out of this piece because the basic theory, people, you know, express political choices that reflect kind of what they want out of politics seems so breathtakingly obvious that I was shocked it, like, required some sort of public articulation. But, but I but I don't think that right. I, I, you know I I actually think that people who work in professional media whatever they often just they they overthink almost everything right and tend to blow uh, all kinds of small little things way out of proportion when really just 
the kind of fundamentals of the thing are are pretty clear, but when you're kind of caught in the day to day, you know, sea of takes, um, it, you kind of lose you lose that perspective that really these things are pretty fundamental, pretty basic, um, and pretty simple. Well, right, and and you know, and again, like it could be as simple. Like in my piece, I tend to argue for the sliver of millennials who I take to be more left wing than Clinton, and I think there's plenty of evidence to support this because, of course, we're not like talking about look, there are millennials who support Trump, more millennials support Trump than support Johnson or Stein. Um, but you know, we're really talking like when people say the millennials aren't supporting Clinton, they're not saying all of them. They're saying the ones who we expect to be liberal Democrats. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, plenty of millennials also voted for Romney. Um, but, and, and again, and it's worth stating again that they're still her strongest group. It's not as right. if there was a generational meeting and we said, no, 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 we're defecting to Gary Johnson. You got guys like Drum who, who think that's irrelevant. You think it's just like a relative, you know, issue. It's like, well, the problem is that, you know, they supported Obama in higher numbers. So it's, uh, you know, we need to explain why they're, they're not supporting Clinton. Right. The answer is they're brainwashed by Sanders. A bunch but of Bernie like, Bros. Yeah, yeah, a bunch of Bernie Bros. Mostly, mostly women, but you know Bernie Bros. Toxic, right. toxic female he's, Bernie Bros. Woke and he's gender. He's embracing gender queer identity, so he refuses to accept the binary, and that's why women can be Bernie yeah. Bros. But yeah. um, what I gender think is a social kind of, construct determined totally. by Sanders' support. Exactly. <laughs> um, so <laughs> we're actually being way too binary in this. Anyway, but what, what I think is kind of fascinating in terms of, and I, I'm fully embracing uh, pathologizing these people, these hot takers, if you will. Um, yeah. It's fun to pathologize not, them, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Well, I even say in my piece I don't want to pathologize them. I just think that they're more conservative, no. and so this is normal. Right. Right. I mean, fine line between being conservative and pathological or... Sure, fair I enough. Think this, it, right? But w- what drives me... I was going to say crazy, but that's ableist. What I find problematic um, is that a couple things. One is, like, why are they focusing on this is if, as you say, millennials are supporting Hillary Clinton. And two, if this is really about uh, Hillary and getting behind Hillary and making sure she wins the election, which in theory it is, right, because she's running against the fascists. And I sure. keep making this point, but I just kind of can't get over it, and I don't think enough people are, are talking about it or calling people out for it. Like, why are you calling these people idiots? Why are you calling Sanders? Why are you saying that, that uh, I hate Sanders? Why is Clara Jeffrey saying I hate millennials? If this were really about convincing people. And well, then, the really, yeah. yeah. You know, the really maddening thing, right, is someone, you know, actually asked, I think Kevin Trump this, and said, you know, why, if, if you want people to support Clinton, why do you keep writing these columns that are so insulting to the voters that Clinton needs? And that's the only time Kevin Trump will ever say the words, well, I don't work for the campaign, I'm just a reporter. <laughs> Which, right. after a year of, I, I think the most common tweet that I send now is, you are not actually an employee of the Democratic Party. But in the right. one case of going after Sanders, then they, they all remember that they're independent and truth-telling reporters who have, have no responsibility to the campaigns that they support. Right, exactly, yeah. Right, so... So then, um, I mean, I think that he's, like, probably one of the best Trump um, PR people out there. Maybe. I, I, mean, I, I don't know. I don't know if anyone reads enough of this stuff. Well, okay, <laughs> then that's the other question, right? So how much – I mean, I talked about this with Carl Bayer, but how much of this is actually relevant? Um, how much are uh, these hot takes – how relevant are they? Do they – maybe they themselves don't. Like, maybe Mother Jones articles don't actually influence the voter turnout or who people yeah, vote for. No. But 
But does it have, is it symptomatic of, a, of a, something that is happening on a kind of a larger level? Well, yeah, I'd say it does two things. Like the, the sort of small thing is that to the extent that it, anyone notices or cares about these are precisely the, that, that sliver of like super plugged in voters, right? So if we even want to just cordon off the ones who actually are like looking at the Clinton poll, like those are the guys who actually read Kevin Drum pieces or my pieces or you know, so you are insulting the, like, you know, they're, by calling all young voters idiots, the only people who are going to hear that are the ones who have the best case that they're, in fact, not idiots. But right. two, no, I mean, and I've argued this before, right? I don't think that it's like these hot takes get written and sent out and you know, disseminated to every, you know, doorstop with the morning paper and then the people read them and become infuriated. But I do think that, you know, like high-level liberalism and sort of democratic liberalism has a way of talking to itself. And mm. the way that it talks to itself ends up having, like, a pretty determinative effect on how, you know, how it engages the world, the sorts of policies it pursues, what it takes to be the situation of the country that it's in. Um, and it doesn't really matter if everyone reads the hot takes as long as the, you know, relevant uh, elites read the hot takes. Um, and it's, an argument I got, it's an argument I got into with, uh, with Jamel Bowie back when uh, I wrote Smug Style, he was like, you know, not that many people watch The Daily Show, so why are you so mad about The Daily Show? And was, you know, I don't think that conservatives are watching Jon Stewart be an asshole and, and getting furious and voting for Trump, but I do think it has an effect when every liberal hears Jon Stewart, you know, reassure them that the meritocracy they've constructed for society is good and just and that, you know, poor rubes deserve to be poor because they're dumb hicks and just look at the supercut of them being dumb. Uh, and that does create a culture that has, I think, you know, second and third order policy and political consequences. That's weird. So right? I've read I've read a, a Jamel Bowie takedown of the Daily Show uh, when it when it ended when John Stewart's Daily Show ended. Uh, so it's weird that he would uh, be confused by you writing about it. Maybe well, it was right. the um, Renzi uh, and Mish, and Mish, and uh Yeah, I actually I actually agree with Jamel's them. take on the Daily Show when he wrote it back in the day. Yeah, so did I. I. I like. I mean, you know, I, I single him out here, but I actually like a lot of his work. Uh, it was just a sort of bizarre thing. Yeah, then to have him turn around and say, "No, no, no, the Daily Show is bad in the way I think it's bad, not in the way you think it's bad." Yeah. Right. Right. So, so you're saying that you think that um, it's not just representative of a certain um, way of liberals, uh, certain way that liberals think, but you think it actually is kind of has a ripple effect or is, is representative of something that does get communicated and, and kind of um, has some sure. effect on. So can you sure. talk more about that? Because I, I'm, I, I think that's true on some, some gut level, intuitive level, but I'm, I'm curious about the mechanism uh, through which that happens. I think the mechanism through which that happens, right, is it's the elite talking to itself, especially amongst liberals who are, you know, very, very cloistered at this point. In, in urban areas and on the coast and in sort of think tanks, universities, and magazines. Um, you know, you get the thing where, you know, what starts as a, uh, you know, spat of takes between John Chait and Matt Iglesias becomes something that seems like an issue, so maybe someone at the Post should write about it, which becomes something that, you know, someone sees as a memo. I mean, you know, when you have things like, I mean, to, to not to dredge too deep into the sort of, uh, wars of the primaries here, but you have like the president of the Center of American Progress routinely getting furious at like Matt Bruning and Corey Robin and these guys, and it creates a culture where there is this like sort of perceived left liberal war going on. 
Um, that, that, that kind of is. Well, in there a is, but good what's, way. What's, yeah, in a good way. But what's ironic Maybe, yeah. about it is that you know the left is sort of been accused of, of starting this war, which is odd right. because totally. it, like the second Sanders came in, it became, there, and as we now know, even internally at the Democratic National Committee, there was a like pretty concerted effort to actually at that level talk about this debate in like terms you know basically invented on Twitter. And I don't think most voters have any idea about that or care or would understand. I mean, every time I try to explain this stuff to people with, like, normal lives, they, they find it infuriatingly stupid, and right. rightly so. But it, it doesn't matter that, like, the actual people who work, you know, with their hands on the, the levers of political and, and media power do actually pay attention to and care this, about this. And that their worldview is shaped by a sort of bubble in which the primary goal of discourse is to reassure one another that the the sort of distribution of worthiness that they've come up with is actually good. There is definitely, I think, like you were saying, if you look at the Center for American Progress, whichever think tank, there is policy shaping, right? Yeah, eventually, yeah. Okay, that was Emmett Renson. Very smart man. Very smart man. Well, Nando, so tell us about this documentary that you're working on. So uh, it should be coming out next month on Fusion, possibly other platforms. But it's a it's about it's about Trump supporters. We went around the country talking to a bunch of Trump supporters, diving deep into their lives, seeing how they live, trying to get clues as to how someone could support Donald Trump. The the sort of genesis of the idea was when I saw John Oliver's evisceration of Trump with the Trump thing. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Trump does sound rich. It's almost onomatopoeic. Trump It's the sound produced when a mouthy servant is slapped across the face with a wad of $1,000 bills. Trump! The very name Trump is the cornerstone of his brand. If only there were a way to uncouple that magical word from the man he really is. Well, guess what? There is. Because it turns out the name Trump was not always his family's name. One biographer found that a prescient ancestor had changed it from, and this is true, Drumpf. Yes. Drunk and drunk is much less magical. It's the sound produced when a morbidly obese pigeon flies into the window of a foreclosed old navy. Drunk. It's the sound of a bottle of store brand root beer falling off the shelf in a gas station mini-mart. And it may seem weird to bring up his ancestral name, but to quote Donald Trump, he should be proud of his heritage. Because drunk is much more reflective of who he actually is. So if you are thinking of voting for Donald Trump, the charismatic guy promising to make America great again, stop and take a moment to imagine how you would feel if you just met a guy named Donald Drumpf. (laughs) A litigious serial liar with a string of broken business ventures and the support of a former Klan leader who he can't decide whether or not to condemn. Would you think he would make a good president or is the spell now somewhat broken? And that is why tonight I'm asking America to make Donald Trump again. Hashtag make Donald Trump again. We've actually filed paperwork to trademark the name Trump. And incidentally, when we own it, I will have the best word. And, and if you go to donaldjtrump.com, which we own, you can download a Trumpinator Chrome extension, which will replace the word Trump with Trump wherever it appears in your browser. And you can also buy these Make Donald Trump Again hats, which we are selling at cost. I remember thinking, like, oh, yeah, cool, that was fun, you know. And then I was like, wait a minute, like, this this does nothing to help solve the problem. And, like, when I started to realize that 
maybe 50 to 60 million people in this country would vote for Trump. Uh, overwhelming majority of the white people in this country will vote for Trump. Then I started realizing that it's probably like Trumpism is a collective problem that we probably all should grapple so, with in right. some honest way. So that's really true. The overwhelming majority of white people will vote for Trump. Yeah. If white America was a country, Trump would win in a landslide. That's what he's trying to do. Yeah. Make this country white again. Yeah. Just put all the black people in jail and, and kick out all the Mexicans. And kick out all the Native Americans. Yeah. Who came and stole our land. Yeah. But what is, what are the, do you know the numbers, like more or less, what percentage of this? I think I think he's up like 12 points with white people. It's crazy. Between some, it's like, it varies between like 12 and 18. Okay. Maybe. It's, but it's like, it's a clear majority. So tell me about what you found. Well, it was interesting. I mean, we chose, we ended up choosing four people who were, are the main characters in our, uh, of our documentary. One's a uh, plumber from Long Island. The other one is a carburetor salesman from Staten Island. And then we have uh, a woman from Midland, Texas, and uh, and a guy from uh, Tucson, Arizona. Well, he's from Nogales, but he lives in Tucson, Arizona now. There's this big kind of war on the left to try to explain Trump support. And there's the, the sort of like, it's only racism camp. And then there's the, it's only, or I mean... It's, there's those, there's very few people that try to explain it only as a, a response to globalization right, or economic socioeconomic thing, yeah. yeah. But, but Nando, we, if we're a response to that, people will be saying, I like Trump because neoliberalism. Right. That's like my favorite argument, right. which is that clearly you only respond to things that you know how to articulate in academic right. nomenclature. Exactly. And what you see is that the, those things feed into each other. Like both things feed into each other in a very kind of neat way. Like, for example, Troy, the guy from Arizona, he had a landscaping business where he employed 35 people. When we started landscaping, me and my brother, I was a high school dropout at the time. We had run for a good four years. Business was booming. I had my own place. It was it was a, a sweet life. We were landscaping houses that have been repossessed or abandoned. One house had still plates on the table, a pot on the stove. Like They were in the middle of cooking or eating when the sheriff showed up and evicted them. The economy at that point was in the tank. Like That's when everything was starting to drop. Most people ended up just doing their own landscaping. And, you know, it just kept going on a decline. Me and my brother were helping my dad pay the mortgage on the house. Ironically enough, the realty company that provided most of our business was the realty company that came and foreclosed on our property. And we knew exactly what was going to go on at our place. This is where I work now. It's a production bakery. We do massive orders of bread. We do, we've got contracts with Trader Joe's. I make eleven twenty-five an hour. 25% of my wages get garnished to pay for a vehicle that I had lost. In the past year, just as a result of the wage garnishment, I've been evicted four times. I've given up on the whole being able to have my family with me and come home and kiss my wife in the kitchen. That classic American dream is no longer a viable option for me. And, you know, me personally, that's why I'm a Trump supporter. He had a great life. He had a great little, a great house that I went to with a beautiful view out in the desert. And when the, when the housing market collapsed in 2008, he lost every, you know, lost his kids, like, you know, lives, lives in a house with no power. Lost his kids. You know, he's... He's very angry about this. <laughs> right. And he's a white guy. He's actually his his he's actually uh, ha half Mexican. His mm, mother came over the border illegally. Legally. Illegally. Oh, illegally. Wow. Yeah. His mom issues clearly. Yeah, probably. He, you know, blames American corporations who outsource jobs, but he also blames refugees who are coming and taking his jobs. He says right. that like he's like he's I've worked with refugees who are taking honest decent American 
working job. You see both those things. One fuels the other. And um, and then I think what you see from other from from other people is that, for example, hey, the woman from Midland, Texas, she. She, her family uh, owned a independent oil business, which I didn't even know existed. You Wait, know. Real quick question. He took you to his old house to see yes, it? Yes, And there are other people living in yeah, it now? Yeah, and they, he actually went to high school with the guy who's living in there now. Oh, wow. So Nogales is a small town. Does he hate him? No, no, no. He was he's he was very friendly with him. And, That's you know, nice. Yeah. Good attitude. Yeah, yeah. Anger yeah. just eats us up inside. It does. You should forgive people for your own sake. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this woman, Kay, she, she, her family was in the independent oil business. So they had like a small company that drilled for oil in Texas. Like I didn't even know those things existed. But I guess what's what's happened to um, a lot of these independent oil businesses is that they, they just can't compete with the major multinationals, right? right? Like that as the power of multinational corporations has increased in the past 20 years, they've kind of squeezed out these kind these these independent small businesses that really kind of gave people a real sense of ownership over their lives. Like if you, even if you didn't own the business, if you worked for a, a place that's owned by someone in your community, you know who the owner is. There's more of like a, a cohesive social fabric there than when if, you know, Walmart or something right. steps in and everyone works for them. And, the, and even if they're all making more money. And so you see a lot of that because the three other people that we, that we profiled were all in some way small business owners or worked in a small business. And I think small business owners are a huge core of Donald Trump's support. You know, it's, I mean, there, there are plenty of really destitute white people who are supporting him, but the real sort of pulse of, the, of Trump support comes from these sort of middle class small business owners who are staring at a future where they, they just cannot, can't compete with the, with the Amazons and the Walmarts and the major multinational corporations that take over, have taken over the economy. So that was, that was the kind of other interesting thing from that. And again, they all, you know, they're, for example, Kay is very clearly like a reactionary mm -hmm. in her kind of initial reaction, but then she tries to very honestly work through her thoughts and tries to, like, for example, when we asked her about Black Lives Matter, you know, at first her reaction was like, oh, you know, like, no, whatever, like, you know, rejection. They don't they, matter. Well, no, not they, they all say like all lives matter. Right, right, right. right. which so is like the that. same thing kind of. Right. So, but what she says is like, but then she starts saying like, but I have to admit, when I saw the mothers of the, of the black people who were killed by police, and if they are saying that this is true, that police are unfairly targeting, then there must be something to that. And and she just started like she almost like talked herself right. into like a pretty woke. Uh, right. Uh, I hope you like a responsible liberal told her she was racist and um, needs yeah, to check and, her privilege and, and and deserves to just die. Yeah, and, just, and privilege yeah. die in a in a privilege checking <laughs> yeah. um, like uh, quicksand. Yeah, because um, she starves to death because she just can't even eat. She's checking privilege exactly. too hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Her yeah. eyesight goes everything. Yeah. Um. So interesting. I mean, I think a, a, an interesting thing that really does has surfaced and I'm, I'm guilty. I mean, I used to be guilty of this. I am still on some level, but much less than I think most liberals because um, I'm a leftist, mm -hmm. um, which is so funny. I used to like really roll my eyes at people who said that yeah. and I thought it was now all like... Now you've become that. I w always was that, but I wasn't the type of person who would, who would use that as a label and clearly if I go out and do organizing yeah. or like door knocking, I'm not going to be like, hi, I'm, I'm a super lefty. I'm not a liberal. Let's talk about the difference. <laughs> right. Like useless. But I do think that there's this contempt for racists that they're i mean the thing with the liberals there should be contempt for racism but 
to f- not understand and this again people love presenting trump fans as yeah. it's not about being poor it's not about losing security it's not about sensing that it's, the system isn't working it's not about again it's not about globalization because they're not calling it that right there's this vilification of uh and it's a very stupid thing it's just like no it's just race there's an inherent well, so, racism so there's two thing. things going on there i mean people who are raced especially especially working class people right. I mean, the vast majority of working class people that i've always uh, encountered in my life, uh, whether they're black, uh, Hispanic or white, are tend to be very problematic. Mm-hmm. You know, they tend to be bigoted or homophobic or misogynist. Like it's, it's just, and wear it on very... their sleeves, at, right? In a yeah, way that... it's, it's 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 very common. And then so you have to just just calling that out like is is, is does nothing. It's not enough. It's not you doing know, the work, it's not doing the work. And then the other thing is that liberals d- are very blind to the inherent racism within liberalism. Right. Um, I mean, the funny example is is Jason Jones and Samantha Bee like furiously trying to block the integration of right. their children's schools. Such you know, a good move. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, the fact that, you know, when liberals say things like, oh, but think of the undocumented immigrants right. that Donald Trump became president. Right. And it's like, wait, what it's going on? You know, the yeah. New York Times News published flash. the yeah. other day that they're that they're they're instituting right. a new thing to uh, deport all the Haitian right. undocumented immigrants right. because there's too many of them. They're um, like they may start deporting Mexicans. <laughs> yeah, it's if like Donald well, Trump is president. Yeah, it's like yeah, Obama deported 2.5 million Mexicans more than all the presidents of the 20th century combined. Oh, but I do think there's this interesting thing where it's actually like first of all, it's a it's not anti-racist. It's not anti-effective anti-racist organizing to just condemn racists. Like if you actually want to change people or address the problems and it's a then you you may want to pursue something where you have a dialogue or look at structural uh, issues that contribute to it. It's weird. It's almost like this right. It's like the equivalent of the right wing uh, anti-appeasement. Mm-hmm. Like we're not going to negotiate with these people. Yeah, like, we're going to use force. This is kind of like a a liberal ideological yeah. force. Yeah, I think there is there is some similarity. I think I guess with the you may think like with the liberal kind of treatment of racism to the conservative treatment of terrorism. Yeah, or crime. Right. It's yeah. this punitive, like yeah. no understanding yeah. of where it comes from. And even saying this now, I'm like, oh my god, people are going to say I'm racist. They're going to say right. I'm being and, soft and on racism. There's a difference between excusing it and explaining it. Yeah, exactly. Right? Or looking into what the origins are, so that maybe we can actually Address try the, to. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so this this uh, comedian named Arish Singh, who's Sikh and um, was wearing a war. Where's a turban and went to a Trump rally and he got kicked out because he had some anti-hate sign. I was talking to him. We're going to have him on the show. But he made this fascinating point about how it's not actually if you care about racism and you don't want someone like him who wears a turban to be vulnerable, you're like abdicating your responsibility by just condemning racists because mm-hmm. it doesn't help anything. Right. And it's like actually enabling racism. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, the the best way to... To make someone sort of reinforced in their own views is to tell them that they're that they're, when they're racist when they don't believe they are right, and then it's oh, oh another liberal no. telling me yeah, and yeah. they're defensive because everyone knows that that's a, supposed to be I mean it's a bad thing, but and it's again it's a tough one to navigate obviously right. you know like you also don't want to be like pro racism yeah <laughs> so it's a tough one to navigate but um I I do think that the way liberalism handles it in 2016 in our current environment is not effective I like, think we we just stumbled onto something really good it's like the conservative high five it is the con the conservative like 
MO of just vilifying the enemy. Right. And again, it's not just a moral issue, right? Like, I think it's wrong to just bomb civilians. But let's say I don't care about the people over there. It's in our own self-interest to not, like, yeah. radicalize more people yeah. so that they'll bomb us, 100%. right? 100%. Same thing. If if, if racism is, your, is the enemy, um, like, maybe actually, like, engaging people who are racist or have v- racist views would yeah. be a better idea. Because you're not going to shame people into no. not stopping racist. It's not like someone no. is going to be like, you know what? This northeastern New Yorker told me I was racist, and I had a real, you know, that calling out culture can be yeah. so so useful. Yeah. And I really started yeah. to check my privilege, yeah. and um, yeah, I really unpacked it and I interrogated it. And yeah. in a way, I think that 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 culture almost made made some things worse in that it kind of suppressed a lot of people's yeah. And they and it just <laughs> to the point where it eventually had to boil over. Right, exactly. Yeah. Rather than addressing it for real, they just right. kind of buried it. It's like when you right. when you bury your own emotions and then you then you lash out at some point. Right. Because mm, wow. I, I'm not speaking from personal exactly. Experience. Yeah. Um, what happens to a dream deferred? I mean, it's kind of ironic. I'm going to quote a Langston Hughes poem, but yeah. I'm going to do it. Does it bubble up and die? What is it? Um, I just want yeah, to you quit, got it. right as uh, or does it, it. does it. it yeah I know what's more respectful than that is like yeah. just getting it wrong just erasing black voices bit, like always distorting it it's yeah. not even ra- that's yeah. even better in montage of a dream deferred the poet Langston Hughes wrote with remarkable foresight about the civil stru- civil rights upheavals to come what happens to a dream deferred does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? Well, Nando, this was great. And uh, where can we, so we're gonna look out for your documentary. Yeah. On Fusion. Yeah, on Fusion. Yeah. And um, you're Nando, what are you on Twitter? Nando R. Vila, 1L. Nando R. Vila. And uh, thanks, guys. This has been the Katie Helper Show. And you can hear the Katie Helper Show every Wednesday at 7 p.m. on WBAI, WBAI.org, 99.5 FM. And you can always find us on SoundCloud and iTunes.